if you have your Bible, I hope that you do, um, go to 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It'll be on the screen as well, but I encourage you to follow along because we'll be going in and out to different parts of these six, ver- six verses throughout our time today. Uh, so let me read it to you, and then I'm going to ask you to pray for me and for yourself. So 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how do you know that you are a Christian? How do you know that you're saved? It's a question that can haunt us. And so rather this, if this is the first time you've been in a church service, we're glad that you're here. Um, or you've been attending church for the last 50 years, it's a natural question to ask. How do you know? How do you know that on your final day, you will enter heaven? How do you know? So I want to answer that question today by looking at 1 John. And as I said earlier, we all come in with our own assumptions about why we think we are Christians or how all of this works. But what's interesting is that the foundations that the Bible gives for why we should believe that we have eternal life sometimes is very different from the foundations that I've seen and heard from different people. That when people say, yeah, I know I'm a Christian, It's based on these false foundations that are not mentioned in the Bible. So what I want to do in our time today is at the beginning here establish like what is 100% not foundations for eternal life? Like what is just, we can clearly say these are not foundations for eternal life. And then we'll look at three truths or three, three assurances that we can know that we have eternal life. So here's eight assumptions about eternal life that are built on false foundations. The first one is that people say, I know I'm a Christian because I was basically born a Christian. Maybe your mom and dad went to church. Like, you remember birth and then church, and that's all you remember, right? And based on that, you believe that you are a Christian. Well, the Bible never teaches that where you were born or who your parents are makes you a Christian. That just because your parents went to church and followed Christ does not mean that you are a believer. God is doing his own work with you. Another thing that people say is, well, I talk, you know, people would say, well, I go to church. I've gone to church once or twice. I go every now and then, or I've gone to church my whole life. That they believe church attendance is what makes them a Christian. While gathering with the church is essential for following Christ, the Bible never says that going to church by itself is assurance for eternal life. That you go to church every single Sunday of your life and not have eternal life. Another one is a moral lifestyle that people will say, well, I'm a good person. I'm kind. I'm honest. I'm generous. A lot more than those other people, a lot more than those Cowboys fans, right? And so you, you kind of come up with these things that say, here's how I know that I'm a Christian because I do good things. Well, anyone can do a good thing, right? Doesn't mean that you are a follower 
of Christ. Another one's intellectual knowledge. That people in their minds, they say, you know, I, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, so I know that I'm a Christian. Well, that just puts you on the same playing field as the devil himself. Like, he believed Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. That doesn't mean he has the saving grace of Christ. Knowledge is not assurance for eternal life. Another one is active ministry in serving that people will say, well, look, all, look at all that I do in the church. Look at all the places I serve, and then we would be good to remember Matthew 7, verse 22, where Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That it's possible to do all kinds of things in the church, even to be called a pastor and not truly know Christ. It's possible. Another one is a guilty conscience. That people will say, well, I feel bad when I sin, so I must be a Christian. And the reality is that all kinds of people do like, all kinds of people feel bad when they do something wrong. It doesn't make them a follower of Christ. Another one's positive thinking, that someone might say, well, I think I'm a Christian, so therefore I am a Christian. And if positive thinking was the foundation for assurance, then no one could ever be deceived. And then the last one, which is the most tense and the most controversial, um, is that Someone will say, well, I'm a Christian because I made a decision in the past. So a past decision. Or someone might say, I know I'm a Christian because I signed that card. I prayed that prayer. I said those words. I went forward. Like I remember where I was when I do that. And, and I want to be careful here because there are many true followers of Christ who remember the exact moment when they put their faith in Christ. I'm one of those. I remember the exact moment. The pastor was giving a cheesy illustration, and I was at church camp, right? <laughs> and I remember the exact moment. But at the same time, there are many people who signed a card, prayed a prayer, said some words, walked an aisle, joined a church, but today, and maybe even for years, have not been walking with God and have no desire to walk with God, that they may not have eternal life. And please hear this. The Bible does not say, you won't find one verse that says, as long as you said some words or signed a card or joined a church at one time, you can know that you have eternal life. It's much more than praying a prayer. And people will look at Romans 10, 9. And they'll say, well, I'm saved because of this. Because if, He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But you have to ask the question, if you say that you believe something, but that belief has no real impact on your life, does that mean that you ever actually believed it? And so these are the things, right, that can be tense. And we'll talk more about this later. But that is a very brief overview of some of the false assurances that we can kind of build our lives on and that you may have heard. So what are the true assurances? How do you know? The first one and the most important one is that we know that we have eternal assurance because Jesus has paid the price for our sins against God. That we have eternal assurance because Jesus has paid the price for our sins against God. And to understand this, we need to find two words in verse 2. So look at verse 2 with me. He says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the first word I want to define is sin which we actually get the definition for sin 
later in 1 John 3, 4, where he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So sin is lawlessness, breaking the law of God, refusing to hear and obey the word of God. So whenever we think, desire, or act in a way where God's word tells us not to think, desire, or act, it's called sin. Now, most of you would say, yes, I'm a sinner. I sin. But I wonder how many of us have stopped and just felt the weight of what that means, the weight of sin. I'm guessing some of us haven't, haven't. And here's the problem for us. God is holy, he's perfect, he's faithful, and he's just. We are the exact opposite. We are imperfect, prone to evil, and unfaithful. And as a result, we deserve judgment. So for us to be sinners means that we are not holy and perfect. So the question at the center of the Bible is how can a holy God show his love to sinners when they are rightly due his wrath? It's the most important question of the Bible. How can God show his love when we are due wrath? How can God be true, just, and kind to us? Because here's what happens, okay? In our misunderstanding of the depth of sin, like we don't understand how deep the stain goes, in our misunderstanding of sin, we try to flip the question on God. We actually point our finger at God and say, how can you punish sinners? How can you tell us what's right and wrong? Who are you to condemn someone? How can you let people go to hell? But the question of the Bible is the exact opposite. God, how can you be just and let sinners into heaven? And the disconnect lies with how we understand the justice of God. That we look at God's judgment on sinners and say, how can a loving God punish people? And we look at him and we say, a loving God wouldn't send people to hell. But in that statement, we are misunderstanding the justice of God. See, we love the idea of God's justice until we realize that his justice actually means our condemnation. You follow that? That his justice actually means our condemnation because God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot allow himself to commune with someone who is identified with sin. He cannot just overlook your sin. He can't do it. That would be an injustice. He would compromise himself. It goes against his very nature. So to, pic- to picture something, picture a man standing in a courtroom and a judge, he's, this guy's guilty of theft, he's guilty of murder, and a judge looks at him and says, you know what, you're free. It's no big deal, right? Go on. Would you be okay with that? We would have that judge kicked off the bench immediately. Why? Because he's not doing what he's appointed to do. He's not just. And do we realize, hear this, do we realize that God's forgiveness of our sin is actually a threat to his holiness? That he can't just forgive us. God would compromise himself if he did that. He would compromise his holiness. He cannot just let us go free. That would not be just. So how do we balance the tension that God is both loving and just? 
It's a problem for us. It's also a problem for God, but it's a problem that only God can solve. So let me pull all this together. Here is the best news and the greatest assurance that you and I have for eternal life. The best and greatest news. Jesus died for God. Wait, did you misspeak? Don't you mean Jesus died for us? No, Jesus died for God. Did he die for us? Absolutely he did. For God so loved the world, right? But scripture also makes clear that Jesus died for God. I think many Christians today have never realized that Jesus' death wasn't just for us. Jesus' death was ultimately for God. That Jesus balances the tension of God's justice and God's love. And so let me flesh this out. You see this played out in our next word, the word propitiation, okay? And you'll see this kind of come together. Propitiation, in verse 2, is a word that refers to a sacrifice that settles judgment or satisfies wrath. So to give you a picture, throughout the Old Testament, when God's people deserved judgment for their sin, they would offer a sacrifice, a propitiation, something that would appease God's wrath. That they would offer this sacrifice as a symbol for the penalty of sin, which the penalty of sin is death. And when that sacrifice happened, it would show that that debt had been paid. And as a result, God's just wrath towards sinful people was satisfied. That when he looked at their sin, he would see innocent blood spilled, and he wouldn't see their sin. His judgment was settled, okay? By the time you get to the New Testament, the whole point is that those Old Testament sacrifices were not enough. None of those sacrifices could pay the full price. None of them. So the question still stood in the New Testament. How can a holy God show his love to guilty sinners who are rightly and justly due his wrath? And we find out how he did it. He solved it by sending his son. And look at what it says in verse 1, Jesus Christ the righteous. So think about this. He's the promised Savior who never sinned. He never broke God's law, but he kept it perfectly, which means that he himself did not deserve the penalty of sin. He didn't deserve it. The penalty of sin is death, and Jesus never sinned, so therefore he never deserved death. And that made him, as God in the flesh, uniquely qualified to pay the divine penalty for sinners, to settle the judgment of God and satisfy the wrath of God. That, that is what Jesus did at the cross, that he was dying first and foremost for the glory of God and for the purposes of God so that he could, God could forgive us. Do you see it? John 12, 27, right before Jesus went to the cross, he said, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What drove Jesus to the cross? The glory of God. That Jesus died to show that God is holy. He has not compromised himself. To show that God is perfect, that he is righteous and just, that he is good and he is loving. And in one crowning moment in all of human history, Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God on sinners while also showing the love of God to sinners. In one moment, Chinese church leader Watchman Nee, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, Google him, he's cool, um, he said, if I would appreciate the blood of Christ, I must accept God's evaluation of it, for his blood is not primarily for me, 
but for God. The cross is first and foremost about God. It is a declaration to the world that God is holy. And we say things like, and I wonder what Jesus saw in me that would send him to the cross. The answer is nothing. That's why he went to the cross. The cross is not a display as much of our value as much as it is a display of God's value. The cross is not intended to make us think highly of ourselves. The cross is intended to make us think highly of God. That we look at the cross and we see God's name is lifted high, that he is holy, he is righteous, he is just, and that he is rightly full of wrath towards sinners. But listen, we praise him. Because at the same time, he is mercifully full of love towards that he is just and loving. So let me ask you a question because this changes everything about how we think about the gospel. Are you trusting in Jesus alone right now as the Son of God, God in the flesh, who came to offer his life as a sacrifice for your sin? Are you really trusting him? Because if not, then you don't have a lot of reason for assurance that you have eternal Life. You're not trusting in the only one who's able to give eternal life. This is the starting point, that our forgiveness, think about it, our forgiveness is no longer a threat to God's holiness. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. And because Jesus died for God and God's purposes, we can now be looked at and declared righteous. That's the gospel. And that's the starting point. He's the doorway, and and he is the entrance to communion with God and eternal life with God. He is perfection and propitiation for us. And when we truly see what Jesus accomplished on the cross, it changes everything. It changes everything, which leads to the second way that we know that we have eternal salvation, that we know because his grace and his gospel has changed us. So if he is the doorway, then how do you know that you actually got through the door? (laughs) How do you know that you actually enter into eternal salvation? And here is John's thesis in the next few verses. When a sinner comes face to face with a holy, loving, and just God, and that sinner sees their sin and repents, turns away from it, surrenders to God, that communion produces change. That communion produces change change. So when I was in junior high, all good stories start like that, right? Um, When I was in junior high, uh, my dad made this massive bonfire. Like it was massive, just huge. And I was so proud of my dad. And um, we're all sitting out there and I found this aerosol can bottle. I don't don't really know. When you find an aerosol bottle in the field, it's never good. And and so you can see where the story's going. And so I picked up this bottle and I had this grand idea like, hey, let's throw this into the fire, right? And so I throw this bottle into the fire, and then there was this massive explosion, like mushroom cloud, the ground shook, my ears were ringing, it like knocked me back, the fire department was there in 10 minutes because they thought our house blew up, right? And so there was just, it was just undeniable for 10 miles, it was undeniable that something happened at that place because of some junior high kid. It was an undeniable moment. And here's the deal. When we truly understand the weight of our sin, 
the destruction it does to us, what it does to those around us, and the offense that it brings God. But God looks at us in grace and receives us with love when we understand how those things work together. It's undeniable. It's explosive. It changes us. You can't, you can't deny that it happened, and you cannot stay the same. An impact with God has an effect. It will change you. That's John's thesis. He says in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, a quick lesson in Greek will help us here. The verb tenses in these two no's are really important. The first no, so K-N-O-W, the first no is in the present tense, which means that it is a continuous acting verb, meaning that we are continuously, actively, right now, in this very moment, knowing, okay? The second no in verse 3 is in the perfect tense. That means that it was a past act that has been completed and still has an effect today. Does that make sense? So here's what John's saying. There is a way, there is something that we can look at that helps us know presently, right now, in this moment, that in the past, we have come to know God. And what is it? That we keep his commands. That this communion with God has created a change in you. And he reinforces that idea by flipping it in verse 4. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So think of it this way. Faith in Christ changes your position before him. That you move from receiving his wrath to receiving his grace. That you move from a stranger to an adopted son or daughter. But not only has he changed your position before him, he's also changed who you are as a person. He has changed you. We keep his commandments because we have been saved. This is how we know that we've been justified by Jesus. We live like Jesus. <laughs> we live like Jesus. And obeying Jesus is not a condition for knowing Jesus. Obeying Jesus is a sign that we do know him. We trust him, so we obey him. We actually make this much more complicated than it needs to be. What is a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Christ. So what's John really saying? Are you following Christ? And if the answer to that question is no, then it doesn't make a lot of sense to call yourself a Christian, does it? And it's a sad commentary on Christianity in our day when so many people profess to be Christians, yet there's so little fruit of actually following Christ. There may be church attendance, there may be moral decency, but again, you, can't, you can have those things and not be a Christian. So the question is, are you obeying Jesus alone as the Lord? of your life. And I want to be careful here because the picture definitely is not holy perfection. It's not that a true Christian never sins, and we'll talk about this later, but the temptation is that, is to say, if you do sin, then you should doubt your salvation. And for the true follower of Christ, when he or she sins, which I do and you do, we all struggle with sin, when we do, that there is confession there is repentance. There is true sorrow for sin. There's a turning away from sin and a desire to change, a working by God's grace to obey Jesus as Lord of our lives, a desire to follow 
his commandments. The goal is not perfection, but holy direction that the closer you grow to God, the more you see your sin before him and you acknowledge it. Is the posture of your heart and life saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. I want to follow you. I trust that your word is better than my ways. Verse five, he says, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. So this text poses, it poses an interesting question because like, what does John mean when he says the love of God is perfected? Has that ever confused you in this verse? What does he mean by the love of God is perfected? So he actually tells us in chapter 4, verse 15. So open up your Bible and go there. I think it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, I want to look at this text because it's really going to help us understand this idea of knowing God. Verse 15 in chapter 4, he says, Whoever confesses, so listen closely, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loves us. So do you see it here? If you confess that Jesus was indeed the Son of God who paid the price for sin with his blood, if you surrender to him, then you now commune with him. You abide with him and he abides with you. And therefore, when he says that he loves you, you actually believe him. You actually believe him. The word perfected, it's in the perfect tense, which means something that has happened in the past that still has an effect today. So at one point, you believed that God loves you and that has an effect on how you live today. And how does it affect you? John says that you would have confidence on the day of judgment. That you aren't wondering if you're truly saved or not because his perfect love has cast out fear that God will punish you. So let me read verse five again. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is Perfected. So if you are presently and actively keeping his word, that is proof at, that at some point in the past, God's love was perfected in you. Do you see it? At some point, the love of God changed you. Now, some of you might be visual learners. Anyone visual learners in here? Um, yeah, like most of the room. Uh, so I made a very simple little illustration. Um, it's literally just letters and words, um, so it's not complicated, but I think it communicates the point. Um, let's say at some point in your life, you came face-to-face -face with the reality that you are a sinner. God, opened your eyes to see your sin and to see so that you could see that you need a Savior and that you cannot save yourself. So you believed him. You believed that he died the death that you cannot die, and you surrendered all of yourself to him. You put your faith in Jesus' work, 
on the cross and his love was perfected in you. You believed it. So that's A, okay? If A truly happened, then B is guaranteed to happen. That communion will produce change. You will begin to see change and transformation, not at once, not all at once, but over time, God will begin to grow you and you will look more like him. Not holy perfection, but holy direction, that he gives you a new mind. He opens your mind to understand his word. He gives you a new heart, that you love who God is. You love the Lord with all your heart, and you love people with all your heart. And if A and B are in your life, then you will know that you have eternal life. That if you have faith in the work of Christ, and his gospel transforms you, and the old identity has passed away, and the new identity in Christ has shown itself, then you can have assurance. Now, here's when it gets hairy, okay? Go to the next slide. So, if you exchange that first equal sign with a plus sign, this is where we begin to have an issue. And sadly, this is where a lot of Christians are today, that we believe, maybe we won't say this out loud, but kind of how we operate, that my belief and my good works contribute to my eternal life. God rejects this idea. This is heresy. And honestly, this is exhausting. It's exhausting. You are always trying to earn God's approval. You're always trying to earn our approval, always trying to prove something or hold something over people, like how good of a servant you are, how much you know about the Bible. But there is no real love for God, our love for people, because his love has not been perfected in you. You do not feel the weight of your sin and the beauty of his grace. And what's interesting So what typically happens when we begin to doubt our faith is that our focus shifts to be. It shifts to works. We ask, am I doing enough? Am I being Christian enough? What happens is we end up shifting the foundation of salvation from the saving blood of Christ to our own capabilities and our own works. Instead, when that moment of doubt creeps in, what should we do? Because we all get it. We remember not be, but we remember the work of Christ. We don't focus on our work, but we focus on his work, that his blood and word is sufficient for us. Now, one last example, um, if you go to that next one. If you say, I love God, but there is no be, no obedience, our real love, If those are just words that you say because it's culturally expected that you say it, or if you say it to please other people like your parents or a spouse or just social expectations, but you consistently live a life absent of confession of sin and unrepentance, if you refuse to really commune with God and be changed by his grace, then John says, you're a liar. That's that's his words, not mine. John says that you are a liar. And so you can take that off. I want to make two things clear um, before I kind of start to close it up. In light of all that, it's tempting to look at a text like this, and instead of looking inward, instead of evaluating your own relationship with God, you begin to judge the faith and fruit of others. It's tempted. We become the fruit police if you will. That was my bad attempt at a joke. Um, 
Nowhere in this text does John say that you are the one who judges whether or not someone else is saved. I don't see that here. That responsibility and expectation is not yours. That is reserved for God himself. This text was not meant to give you ammunition for your assumptions about someone else. Both salvation and judgment is a responsibility of God alone. Only God can judge and only God can change a heart. Think about this. Do you think that God would give me or you the responsibility of another human soul? I can't even do the dishes right. Do you think that he would give us that responsibility? No. He's the one who changes hearts. He's the one who judges. So before you begin to just assume about other people, you be very careful. That responsibility was not given to you. It was not given to you. Let me say something else. There are many of you in here who are thinking about a son or a daughter, or a brother, or a sister, or a friend, and maybe you went to church with you at some point, that you were close to them, but they rejected Christ, and now they are in the world, and you're thinking about them, and you're asking, did they lose their salvation? Are they still a Christian? Well, my quick answer is you can't answer that, and I can't answer that. And I want to remind you of something. A man-centered perspective at this topic looks at someone else and judges their eternal standing with God in a moment. You say, oh, they're not a believer. But a God-centered perspective looks at this through an eternal lens that we should be very careful not to look at someone else and say, look, I don't see this in your life, so that means that you're not a Christian. Because we look at people in a snapshot moment. Be very careful. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, two men went running into the dark, Judas and Peter. Both men rejected and betrayed Jesus. One, the Bible says, was the son of the devil. And the other, God was just getting started with him. And Peter began to grow. And if on that night I came to you and I said, which one of these is a Christian? You would be tempted to say, neither. And you would be dead wrong. You would be wrong. You would condemn a Peter with a Judas. King David is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And King David cheated on his wife and didn't confess it for months. So here's a question. Can someone go through months or maybe even years of disobedience and still be a child of God? Yes. Absolutely. If you are his, you will, he will come after you. If you are his, he will come after you. And you will realize that he is your savior and he is your father. It may be a painful journey. (laughs) It may hurt. Sometimes his pursuit hurts but there is sweet joy at the end of the road. So the responsibility of judging whether or not someone is saved was not put on you. That responsibility was God's alone. You don't know his plans. Now, let me be clear on this. As a faith community, do we call out sin when we see it amongst one another? You bet we do. 
We, we are for the health and for the glory of God and the health of our church. We bear with one another. We come alongside another, one another. And when we see sin, we call it out in love and grace. But the responsibility of saying you're not saved, that is not put on us. God wouldn't do that. And the other thing I want to make clear here, so just so there's complete clarity, not everyone gets one massive aerosol can and the bonfire moment for eternal assurance. Many of you in this room were saved as a child, right? And you don't have this crazy story of how God saved you. And you know what? I praise God for that. There are some of you who kindly, God kindly saved you when you were four. And you didn't sit there as a four-year-old and go, I repent of all my addictions, right? That was awkward. (laughs) But as a four-year-old, you didn't say that. And it doesn't really feel like God has transformed you. When I was a college minister, I would have these students meet with me all the time. And they would feel guilty because they hadn't sinned enough. It's the craziest thing I ever heard. But they really believed that. They felt guilty that God had not changed them enough. They wanted this grand story. And so you know what I have to say for you, for those of you who were basically born in the church and, and you were saved when you were a child? You, wanna, you know what? You praise God for your parents. You praise God for parents who loved you like Christ loved them. You praise God for that shepherd, that pastor who loved you. You praise God for those people who cared for you and showed you the love of of Christ. Stop looking for a singular experience to define who you are before God. You ask God, or you ask yourself, does my heart beat in the same rhythm as God's rhythm? Does my heart beat in the same rhythm as God's rhythm? Does it beat fast for the things of God? Do I love him? What is the rhythm of your heart? What is, the, what is your story? What is the story of your journey tell? Is it a heart that beats fast for God and loves his people? Then you can be assured that you're his. That we, so let me tie a bow on all this. We know that we have eternal assurance because Jesus has paid the price for our sins against God. And we know because his grace and his gospel has changed us. And the last way we know is that we know that we have eternal assurance Because Jesus is pursuing and advocating for us right now. The story of the Bible is running and chasing. That we run for God and he pursues us. But the reality is, we're not perfect. And there will be a day, maybe it's today or tomorrow or next week, when you will sin again. But you need to know something. If you're his, he will pursue you. If you're his, he will pursue you. Pursue you. I love the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter one, Jonah runs from God and God sends a storm to pursue him. And then God sends a fish to swallow him in chapter two. And then in chapter three, Jonah obeys God. He's the man that God's called him to be. But what is Jonah doing in chapter four? He is crying like a baby under a plant because God has been gracious to the Ninevites and he's angry with God and he's running again. And read it, man. What What does God do? Does God give up on him? No. He pursues his children. He will not give up on you. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
And it would be good for us to remember that right now, in this very moment, we have an advocate, an advocate that we need because we run and we hide it and we reject God. Even John knows this. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, I want you to know these things so that you don't sin. But he says, when you do, if you do, then what? Does he say that when you sin, you should doubt your salvation? Does he say that? No. He says, you have an advocate. Does he say you should doubt God's love for you when you fail him? He says, you have an advocate. That right now, at this very moment, Jesus Christ, the righteous, is advocating to the Father on our behalf. Picture it. That when we sin and the Father looks at us, he doesn't see that sin because Jesus is on his throne and he comes alongside of him and says, no, they don't deserve punishment. They deserve grace. My blood proves it. And so when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the blood of Jesus covering us. And Jesus is advocating on our behalf. He's our advocate. He's saying they are pure and spotless. How good is the grace of Christ? My hope is that we as a faith family never get bored with worshiping him. That he continues to be so good and so much better. And that we can have confidence in a God that is gracious.